You're listening to Putting It In Writing, a headstuff podcast about Irish publishing. In each episode, we take a look at the different parts of the industry and find out how they work and when they're working. writers often felt the need to publish their work abroad. Nowadays, Irish publishing is more established, but there is still the question of the author's needs. In April 1915, James Joyce came to be represented by Stephen Pinker, an ambitious agent whose client list already included D.H. Lawrence and Catherine Mansfield. But Joyce's representation was far from straightforward, as Ezra Pound and Harriet Weaver continued to make efforts on his behalf. Even nowadays, the struggle to get experimental or controversial material into print has not diminished. Who is it that bridges this gap between the desks of the author and the publisher? How does the Irish market compare internationally? Who tells everyone else about all the great new books written by Irish authors? As we will hear in the next few episodes, the success of a title depends on a range of different factors. At this stage, though, the main logistical challenge is getting the books from A to B. For many Irish publishers, distribution is something to be considered as a remove. Here's Ivan O'Brien. But in terms of the bulk storage, um, we outsource that. Oh, okay, yes. Um, and so that's, that's somebody else's problem. <laughs> but we do have to be fair and reasonable about the, the stock levels that mm. we have, that we're not holding on to books that we can't sell, and we do have to make sure that books come in from the printer more than five minutes before we expect them to leave the warehouse. Mm, okay. um, and we have to keep them informed about stock that's going to be late. Um, they'll help us with stock that's delivered in a, a bad state, either badly mm. packed or something like that. Every now and again, we have to do remedial measures <laughs> and they'd always be very helpful with that. But they look after picking the books from the shelves, putting mm. them into boxes, getting them to customers okay. and all that. That's, that's not our problem. This is where John Manning comes in. John manages distribution for Gill and Macmillan. I'm at Gill now 20, 28 years in, in December. Um, and every day is a very interesting day, to be honest, um, which has been, which been great for me personally. As John says himself, no two days are the same. One of the great things, I suppose, is the fact that you're in, you're working with the publishing business and industry. Um, it's, it's something new every day. Uh, you know, be it book-wise or, or issue-wise, and you know that's all. That's all very important to, to keep people on the toes and keep alive and interested audience, shall we say. In terms of scale, it is a very daunting operation. We would process um, close on a hundred thousand orders a year. We will ship ship out two point seven million books this year. We anticipate, and we will bring in in excess of three and a half thousand pallets this year. Um, so that a, a pallet could represent 500 to 1,000 copies of one specific title. Um, and we would take another probably five to 600 pallet deliveries of smaller quantities. Um, so it's, it's, it's a consistently very busy, uh, a quick turnaround operation. Uh, we, we, carry, we carry nearly 15,000 titles on site um, and just under 3 million books in the warehouse at any one time. 
This is particularly impressive from the point of view of anyone who has ever done a stock take. We actually, we have it down to a fine art now at this stage. We do an awful lot of prep in advance, but on the actual day, we will, um, we will stay open, but we will have all the stock counted and rekeyed and checked um, by Friday evening about 9, 9 p.m. So we'll start about 10 a.m. on the Friday, and by 9 p.m. we're finished. In every aspect of the business, it is important to have things bedded in. Well, I suppose like most processes, it can be it can be as easy or as difficult as you make it. So for, for us, yeah, firstly, you must have good people, um, which fortunately we do. Um, a lot of staff in Guild have been here, you know, in excess of 20 years. So we have seen every possible scenario. Um, we're open to learning more should the, the need arise. Um, but once you have, have good people in place, it means you can do really anything in terms of processing. Um, so we, we, I suppose, effectively, we have to make sure that we have a system in place that enables us to receive and process orders quickly and effectively, um, fulfill those orders, obviously, but capture all the necessary information to process during the process of the order. A few of Gill's 55 clients are companies with international customers. Um, the majority of our, our traffic would be based in and on the Ireland of Ireland. Um, but we have traffic into the UK and, and equally we have the flexibility and expertise to be in Dubai or Tokyo within 48 to 72 hours. If um, That does happen the other time, believe it or not, but not as, as regular. Yeah, we, we have, for example, we have a container going out uh, tomorrow with FedEx and it's heading over to Dubai. So, you know, we, we can go anywhere you want. Anna or Timbuktu, it doesn't matter. That's where uh, we will get something there for you should you need it. These assignments also have their quirks. Um, it's just, in, for example, in America and Australia, um, we must only ship, if we have a large consignment going to any of those areas, we can only ship on plastic pallets or, or specially treated pallets. Um, we choose plastic because it's very visible what it is and the way it goes. The treated pallets must be stamped and obviously treated, but also must be accompanied by documentation for each pallet. And that can be a bit more complex. So we stick with the plastic pallets for export. Unfortunately, it is not as simple as sending books abroad. For one thing, Ireland is next door to a much larger market. If it's a thing that we get a title that really runs well and it goes into the UK, terrific. But a lot of the, a lot of the purchases, purchases in Ireland are still based on UK books coming in here. Um, for, you know, Jamie Oliver type type product, uh, and they're all very good product. So it can be it can be challenging. Everybody has most of our clients. The majority of them will have a distributor in the UK, um, but it can be very difficult. You know, where it's they might have three or four titles that'd be relevant to the UK. That the rep that might be representing them over there, and may have you know a list of five or six hundred titles that are ahead of us. And it can be, you know, we can be a very, it can be quite challenging for an Irish publisher to get into the UK on a, on a big basis. That said, operating in a larger market poses its own challenges. But yes. if you look at what's happened uh, with other companies, so yes, pretty much all the big UK publishers mm, yes. have built new distribution systems and new warehouses over the last 10 or 15 years. And in every case, it's been a complete disaster. Okay, I see. Um, the <laughs> most famous case being Penguin, where for one complete autumn season, they were simply unable 
to get the right book onto a van and out to a shop literally for months and it cost okay. them millions yeah i can imagine um, and other people have had similar instances so mm. we're really lucky to have a really good uh, distribution partner mm, who yes. are stable with really good people mm. who do a good job and very rarely make a mistake. The issue is trends in Ireland are affected by the UK market. Um, because obviously a lot of, you know, a high percentage of sales in Ireland are, are UK products that come into Ireland. Um, so it's UK publishers putting it into a market and, and selling it here and that's great for them. But it also means that we have to be very aware of pricing um so that we we don't price ourselves out, out of competition either you know so it can be it can be pricing at any stage can be challenging but certainly we would pay a lot of attention to what goes on in the uk there is another way for irish publishers to export their titles here's svetlana pironko if we if we talk about uh, international rights uh, it means uh, english language rights uh, sold to um, North America, US and Canada, to Australia and New Zealand, maybe even South Africa, and um, and uh, sometimes even the UK. And we also have translation rights. The sale of these rights is crucial for Irish publishers, as well as their writers. It's important because if we speak about English language rights, the Irish market being um, very small, um, it, it makes it um, quite difficult for Irish publishers to um, actually get enough money from the sales to make uh, uh, many of their publishing projects uh, viable. And, um, uh, the size of the market is um, the, the main consideration, uh, in my opinion, because uh, it, um, it's, uh, it's very difficult for Irish publishers to sell books, physical books, uh, in, um, in the UK. Of course, uh, electronic books uh, um, opened a lot of markets and a lot of doors. <laughs> Um, to to publishers worldwide, but uh, we would be focusing on uh, physical books anyway because this is still the um, uh, the format that uh, brings to authors and publishers uh, most of their income. Subtitles are even made to be exported. Um, similarly, there are books that we will produce in the hope or expectation of a right sale. Right. Yes. So we think that there's a big international market for really good fan YA fantasy, for example. Mm. Um, so we will produce things that don't justify themselves on the basis of the Irish market alone. Right. In okay. the hope slash expectation that there'll be another way of paying for those over time. In other cases, international rights allow publishers to distinguish themselves. We uh, we're the only publisher in Ireland uh, that publishes books in translation for children. Okay. So we've bought books in from Germany, from France, from uh, Sweden, from yeah. Brazil, and we publish them here for the Irish market. Um, okay. And we fund the translation and we fund various things to do with that. Okay. So um, because of that, we have to travel to rights fairs and mm. then we also have to pay for translation costs. Mm. So we get some funding for that. as well. Ultimately, it is international rights that allow Irish titles to find new readers. Uh, so 
selling international rights uh, is necessary because it would allow the books to travel, of course, but it would also give a lot of additional income to both publishers and writers, uh, as um, advances from foreign publishers can be much higher than what um, an average Irish publishing house could afford to pay. We just got no, the um, German yeah. edition of Spill okay. Simmer Falter Wither the okay. other day. Yeah. It looks really <laughs> handsome. Um, so that book's been translated into, let's see, German, Dutch, Spanish, Japanese, French, Portuguese, I think. Um, like everywhere. It's just been everywhere. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's oh, oh, and there's a Japanese edition coming. That's right. Which yeah, is really, cool. yeah. like, that's really unusual. So, yeah, we're, we're totally up for translations. Okay. That's a really important idea. So we can all agree how important they are. But who is it who negotiates these deals? Generally, the agent does that. Right, right the, yes. the author's agent will okay. do that. They'll yeah. take the, the manuscript to the Frankfurt Book Fair or the right. London yes. Book Fair and okay. they'll, they'll sell it And there, I think so. uh, okay. nearly every one of our titles has been f with an agented writer. Um, Flight by Unifrawley wasn't, and Sarah Bourne wasn't when she came to us, but um, okay. Mike McCormick obviously has an agent, and Blinda McKeown has an agent, so yeah. This is one area where agents like Svetlana and Paul Feldstein enter into the process. Yeah, well, um, I suppose writers should understand um, what the agent does and what the agent doesn't do. And we, you know, our basic job is to represent the writers and find them a publishing deal. Different agents spend um, different amounts of time with the writer and their work, getting it ready for that, you know, process of pitching to publishers. We tend to spend quite a bit of uh, of time doing that. Um, we're very selective in, in who we take on, and once we take someone on, we want to ensure that what we submit is the best it can possibly be. So we do put a lot of editorial effort into into working with the writers, you know, and for that process, the agent gets a commission. We've all heard the stories of big money book deals. In reality, though, it seems the life of the agent is just as precarious as that of the writer. We work on commission. We don't get paid unless we get the author a deal and uh, they get paid. Um, and they usually get uh, uh, an advance, uh, a certain amount of money, um, which is a down payment. Um, against future royalties that the book will earn. It is also important to recognize the difference between representation and other business models. With, and, and actually, this, this, I'm glad you asked that question, because this is very important. If, if anyone asks you, be it an agent or publisher, for money up front, they're not really an agent or a publisher. Paul is also in the business of offering advice. Yeah, um, well, the first thing to do is finish. <laughs> Uh, finish your novel. Um, we don't look at anything if it's not finished, you know, to, and simply because we need to know that you can finish. <laughs> you know, it's easy to start one; it's hard to finish them. I can, I can, I can tell you that from experience. Um, and and um, have it read or proofread by someone you know who might be capable of doing so, um, because what you need to do is send in the most pristine version possible with whatever resources you have um, because we're looking for quality we realize it's not going to be a final polished finished novel but it needs to be in the best possible shape before you submit it to agents uh, or publishers um, follow the agents or publishers submission guidelines on their website that's very important um, 
publishers and agents, not us, of course, but other publishing agents get annoyed and some might not even look at anything if it's not um, submitted as requested. So that's very important when you submit. Don't submit to multiple publishers or agents in the same email. Um, nothing annoys the publishers particularly more than that to get uh, something that's just a broadcast email. Personalize it as much as you can. Um, write a good synopsis. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's important because the first thing I'm going to read is the synopsis. So that needs to be pristine in terms of grammar and spelling and syntax and punctuation and all those things. It needs to convey the essence of, of your novel um, as briefly as possible. It's important not to limit yourself too early on. And the other thing is not to write for a particular market or reader. That might sound counterintuitive, but if you try and tailor something to a reader rather than writing what the story should be, it's it's gonna that's gonna show to a certain extent. Now, the the proviso is, or the 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 exception to that rule is, if you want to be a romance writer, obviously, you know there is a certain formula and a certain way to write, and that's that's that is a commercial decision. You can make commercial decisions as a writer um, if you want to get into something that is uh, very commercial and and less. Literary, I, I guess. In all likelihood, you will end up writing for a very small audience. First thing to do is write because you love it, write because you want to write. Don't write with the goal of becoming rich or famous because it's highly unlikely <laughs> but that, that that's um, going to happen. That that um, really is is a bonus. Um, if, if that does happen, you've got to love what you're doing and enjoy the process um, because that's Turning to the question of international rights, how are these sales carried out? There, there could be two, two cases. Um, as an agent, I could sell world rights, including translation, uh, to, um, to the original publisher. Or I could sell world English rights, in which case the publisher could um, either distribute or sell um, English language rights to North America, Australia, whatever. Uh, and I would handle translation rights on behalf of the author. Or I could sell um, English language rights only, let's say, for um, Ireland and uh, United Kingdom. And then I would try to sell international English language rights and um, um, translation rights. Uh, I and, and many primary agent, agents work with what we call co-agents or sub-agents. Uh, we um, we um, uh, sign representation agreements in um, as many countries or territories as possible with um, local agents who, of course, know the market and um, know people. <laughs> Uh, and editors who, who buy books um, better than we could possibly um, know. It's a, it's a wide world, even for 
publishing is a is a fairly small business and uh, it, it's still impossible to to know every um, every country every market and you know everybody who would be potentially interested in the kind of uh, book that we're trying to sell these people on the ground are crucial to the process and then uh, of course, we have to um, provide them with um, the material, not only the, the book or, um, or the manuscript, because sometimes it starts before the book is published. Uh, we also have to give them ammunition uh, to uh, make the book stand out, because as you can imagine, uh, given the number of titles published every year in the English language, um, there is a lot of competition. So no matter how good is the book, if we don't have sales, reviews, or something that makes it stand out among um, hundreds of thousands of books, uh, it's, it has a very, very small chance of selling, especially when it's a first novel. And unfortunately for myself, I specialize in, in first-time authors, so I, I know all about it. And, um, and this is where uh, uh, the original uh, publisher, the originating publisher, um, can make it or break it, because if, if we don't get reviews, if we don't um, get sales even proportionally to the size of the market you know if if we don't get any kind of publicity then it makes um, uh, the agents and the sub agents uh, job very very difficult though it is important to turn up in person from time to time you know a book can be 10 or 20 years before you sell rights on it yeah it's yeah. just a matter of the right book being in the right hands mm. at the right time and yes. that's why we go to all the major rights fairs okay, yes. with our full catalogue yeah. and with samples of every series yeah. available. It takes a lot of space, a lot of time and mm. commitment. Um, but these wonderful things happen well, yeah. if you're in the right space. You yes. know, one example being a couple of years ago, um, someone stopped at our ha at our stand in yeah. Frankfurt. Yeah. Said, I just saw a book there. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah. And it was I Was a Boy in Belson by Tommy Reichenthal, which okay. is a Holocaust survivor memoir. Mm. And this was a Czech publisher, I think. Okay. And most of the people in Bergen-Belsen yeah. had been from um, Czech or Slovakian. Mm, Tommy yes. was actually Slovakian. Okay. Um, so they were interested. Right. And just because they happened to walk past and happened to see that word yeah. on the cover as they strolled past our stand, it got translated into Czech the next year and was available in Tommy's native country. Even... Um, after 2008, 2009, when yes. we were pulling our belt in completely. Yeah. Um, and it was a really, really tough time. Mm. You know, we yeah. only dropped one book fair for one year. Okay. Now, we changed <laughs> the scale of our presence. Yes. Okay. But we kept doing it. Because if you're not there for a couple of years, yeah, people before you know forget. it, it's hard yeah. to get an appointment. Mm. People don't notice what you're at. Yeah. Uh, you drop off the radar. Mm. And then you've lost that, that sales channel, which is really, really important. Uh, even if um, um, a publisher makes an effort that goes to the Frankfurt Book Fair and London Book Fair, both of which are very, very expensive uh, uh, trips, you know. Um, both the participation and, of course, the travel expenses. So if you just go there and you don't uh, 
prepare it, you don't make appointments, you don't uh, try to meet uh, agents um, and foreign publishers. You could just mm, waste your time in three or five days sitting on your stand if you have one and uh, doing nothing and basically hoping that somebody would stop by and then and uh, uh, look at your books, uh, which is highly unlikely because uh, people prepare um, appointments well, well in advance and uh, usually it's back to back every half an hour and uh, uh, nobody has the time to just browse or, or very, very little. You know. So you really need to get lucky. I mean, miracles do happen, but uh, um, they're more likely to happen if, if you can be, if you can prepare them. <laughs> when it comes to promoting Irish writing abroad, Svetlana feels there is more that could be done. And so, um, I, I, I think that more could be done from this point of view. And um, also uh, regarding selling um, international English language rights, uh, not only translation rights. Um, Island Literature, the organization that um, um, is promoting Irish literature abroad um, does a very good job promoting Irish writing, but uh, they don't promote, um, uh, they don't necessarily promote Irish writing from Irish publishers. Uh, they, they focus on, uh, um, on um, Irish writers and so Sometimes um, in in their catalogue um, they they promote Irish authors, including big names that are published by British and American publishers. There are other problems. Trump Press recently took on the Man Booker Prize. Looking realistically at prizes like the Man Booker, like the Baileys, which has the same constraints in terms of eligibility. Yes. Um, I mean, they are the biggest marketing tools for fiction. Um, so if we can't access those, that's a huge problem for yes. us. Um, I would say, I, d I don't think the English are like, you know, trying to keep out the Irish, particularly, mm, probably. Yeah. It's just <laughs> thoughtlessness. Yes. And it's kind of gross. I mean, it kind of smacks of colonialism, mm. doesn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. if you look at the history <laughs> of the man booker, yeah. um, and which is steeped in controversy. I mean, I'm not the only one to have ever, ever have a row with them. Um, <laughs> and I don't think they've noticed so far, <laughs> so I'm fine. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it was originally for books, you know, from Britain or the Commonwealth. And okay. then it was for books from Britain, the Commonwealth, and Ireland. And then a few years ago, it changed um, again to include books from America. So right. the way it's looking now is it's actually books from anywhere, as long as they're published in the UK. Right. Which yeah. smacks of colonialism to still to me, because, mm, I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> they will take talent from wherever, but it has to be stamped with this British yes. seal of approval in order to be considered for this particular prize. I mean, that's just the way it reads to me, because I'm chippy, I guess. But um, <laughs> it's a little bit gross. I would love to yeah. know how Jonathan Swift would talk about it. I just think, you know, it's like the Draper's letters when he complains mm. about that... Um, the, the debased currency yeah. and <laughs> I just I, I just think it's kind of it, I think the colonialism um, comparison is, is fair enough that sort of Irish writers are okay as yeah. long as they come in under a British imprint mm. yes. yeah. it, it, it is a bit I don't want to say taking the soup or whatever <laughs> but there is something that um, the, the, the politics are are a bit 
a bit off and there is something of the using the benefit of what the country has to offer without allowing the country to benefit from it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. our, you yeah. know, it feels like our natural resource is being taken from us yeah, or like something. The judges also don't always get it right. Anne Enright won the Booker when she was published by Jonathan Cape. She'd had um, a few books out at that point. That book wasn't actually submitted by Cape for the Man Booker. They called okay. it in because one of the judges was reviewing it for The Guardian and said this is, you know, The guard Gathering Whatever was, was great, right. yeah. bring it in. Um, had an Irish publisher, you know, published Anne Enright, yeah. they would have submitted her for the Booker from the off and it would have been great for them to have won that and for, yeah. for her. And I think you're, you're putting... I, like I know this is self-serving as well. The problem <laughs> yeah. with with um, a, a, a British publisher for an Irish author is it's not always the right fit, mm. and you are creating a scenario in which people don't benefit from the expertise of an Irish mm. publisher. I in reality, this apparently innocent request that books be published in a certain place creates a two-tier system. There's another problem with the Man Booker and the Baileys, and that is. If there are prizes for rewarding the best works of fiction in a particular year, and they're essentially overlooking indies that aren't based in the UK, they're really missing a trick. Um, I think independent publishing has really been lauded lately, and deservedly so, for showcasing the interesting, weird, exceptional books that people are writing now. I think Emer McBride's The Girls Half Form Thing is a really good example of mm. this. I mean, if that had been found by an Irish publisher, you know, it could never have been put forward for the prize, for many of the prizes it was put forward for, for and that's a real shame. And obviously, then it was picked up by Faber. So it's, uh, at the same time, larger publishers um, have, larger publishers from the UK, for example, for from the US, rather, and from France, and from Germany, they have outposts in the UK, mm. so they can export their work to the UK, yes. and then it can essentially be published in the UK, I'm using inverted commas, <laughs> and, um, and then it can be put forward for the big prizes. So... Uh, it's still gross, and not just in a colonial way, but in a sort of, it's a new economic colonial way, I yeah. guess. So I, uh, and yeah, because our books are technically published in Britain. They have a British ISBN. Mm. They are available in British bookshops. Mm. We have a UK distributor. Mm. We sometimes have UK launches and stuff. We have UK events all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, when we pointed this out the pushback we got was well you have to pay tax mm, um okay. and then we said we pointed out tax we paid but we have to <laughs> have the main office of the imprint and the main tax uh, running through there which really doesn't make a lot of sense no. uh, although we'll come back to that and see yeah we'll come back to it it also affects the perception of irish publishing I mean, our main point in arguing with this, argu you know, arguing as loudly as possible about this, isn't just because we think the man booker will change their minds. Yeah. They won't. Yeah. It's because there's um, there's a presumption, I suppose, amongst the public that you know Irish publishers aren't good enough to get shortlisted for the man booker because it's never happened. But it's just not the yeah. case. So we want to point out the fact that yeah. actually, like, we're just you know, Th there's an expectation of failure, but we haven't failed. We we would do brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. that, that Irish was one of the, the biggest reactions yeah. we got to the article that Sarah mm. wrote was uh, a lot of people were saying, I had no idea, I had no idea. Because a lot of people were tweeting, such a shame Mike McCormick's Solar mm. Bones has not been long listed. Mm. It yeah. is a clear contender. Mm. And right. so everybody's reaction to that. And yeah. in a way, it sort of undermines the man booker committee as well. People were saying, I can't believe they've left this off. Uh, yeah. you know? yeah. um, yeah. Which is really nice. Yeah. It's yeah. like, look at that, it's just not even in contention. Yeah. And it's no so harm. want to point that out and let it be known. You know, it's not that we're not putting stuff forward, we can't put stuff forward. These days, it's very easy to send books and other items anywhere in the world. And there are people who take this work very seriously. The problem is that there is no guarantee that people will buy them once they arrive, even if they are signed, sealed and translated. The importance of international rights to the Irish publishers seems undeniable, and they should be taken seriously. 
as we will hear later in the series, a huge amount of effort goes into producing a book. It would be a shame if they weren't in safe hands when they get their chance to travel. Well, I, I suppose I just um, wanted to add that um, having a very strong publishing scene, despite the size of the market, is in everybody's interest. Because uh, as an agent, um, I, I um, act on behalf of the author. And of course, I want the best deal and the best publisher for my author. And of course, if uh, if I have an offer from a British publisher or an offer from an Irish publisher, um, I would say in most cases it would be very difficult for me, thinking of the author's interest, to to choose to go with with an, an Irish publisher because of the objective problems with distribution. Subscribe to this and other Headstuff podcasts on iTunes and Spotify.